introducing Minor Wisdom Quintet. It was my first week of summer vacation. <sighs> well, I spent the week putting floors down in my house while my wife and mother-in-law are still, they're actually, when this podcast drops, they should be headed home from Europe, Paris, and Barcelona. That's a horse that was, I apologize. And here I am doing the honeydew list already. Week one of the summer year down. Make sure you guys are checking me out on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google, all that other stuff. Uh, follow me on Twitter, Mr. Blake Miner. Follow me on Facebook, Miner Wisdom. Uh, this week, I have Larry Smigleski. Larry is one of my dearest friends, a mentor of mine, one of the smartest theater people I know, and he is currently the stage manager for the Broadway production of Kiss Me, Kate. He has a long resume. He's taught at Marymount Manhattan. He's taught at Sam Houston, taught in Philadelphia. I should remember where, West. Chester or something like that. Anyway, he's been around the block. He also taught inner city schools for a couple years in the Bronx or inner city school. And he's just got a wealth of knowledge. He's got a wealth of knowledge in education. He's got a wealth of knowledge in the theatrical world. We even get into that. I ask him a couple questions regarding just his kind of just crazy amount of trivia that he's got stored in his brain. Now, when I first started this podcast, my wife said, Blake, don't make it a complaint podcast. Don't sit there and just talk about everything that you just can't stand about theater, about education, and all that stuff. But I've got something to say this time, and I'm going to use this platform. I'm going to put this in my soapbox. Here it goes, kids. So this week, I come to realize that there are a ton of of technical theater education jobs open all over the state of Texas. I'm sure there are more outside of the state of Texas. And here's the thing. Professional technicians are needed. You only work two, maybe three weeks on a production, whereas an actor is six to eight to ten weeks, depending on the production. So technicians are always needed. And good technicians and good designers are needed even more. There are a ton of community theaters, a ton of, let's say, average theater around the country, and then there's above average stuff that still needs people, and these, these technicians and designers have no incentive to stay in education or do anything in education, and if they do, universities want them so that they can still practice and be technicians and be designers and right now there is an influx of a need for these people and it's getting a little scary because what's going to happen is schools are going to get desperate and they're going to hire somebody that can simply hold a hammer or just knows how to hang a light because they did it themselves in high school and now the education is going to dwindle in the world of technical theater 
It's a copy of a copy of a copy. It gets lighter and worse every time. So, what's the solution? Make technical theater education worth it. Make an incentive, incentivize that program. Make it so that people want to be technical theater educators. Because right now, they don't want to be. And this week's Groner Joke is very appropriate. What's the difference between a puppy and a teacher? The puppy stops whining when you let it in the door. And you did um, School of Rock, the touring version. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. have you have like did you have any kids on that tour that came from public school to the tour or do, are they all just these performing homeschooled kids? No, actually that's a great question and um our for School of Rock it's a, a little different than other performing show entities that have kids because first and foremost they have to play instruments. So as the stage manager for that who wound up putting in most of those kids as they came out on the tour, there were kids that I had to teach how to act because they only knew the instrument. But then there are a couple of roles that are very specifically, uh, we, we said they were like theater kid roles and non-theater kid roles. And there are a couple of roles that were, there's like the bossy girl and then there's the shy girl who winds up being the lead singer. Like those roles were, there are three of them and that shows that they wanted to be quote-unquote theater kids um kids that had studied kids that sort of understood how to like land jokes but the other nine kids they wanted to feel just like every everyday kids so those three usually always came from even if they were in public school they were in a public school but they were also like taking voice and taking dance and taking acting they were the kids that you know were probably playing annie somewhere in their hometown at like eight years old things like that um so it was a little bit of a mix there um again it's like so so specific to the instruments in that show that sometimes they forgave other inconsistencies in the performance actually i I mean i guess i didn't i didn't realize that they yeah that was their first that's their first talent um yeah so especially because like when you have a swing kid like our swing boys have to play four so it's almost like I don't care. If, <laughs> I don't care if this kid even knows how to like find his way to the stage. If he can play yeah. all these roles and cover it with someone's stick, that was such a huge priority in in that moment. What what age range are you talking? So for School of Rock, the youngest kid that we had was nine, and they huh. usually capped it like. 13 was the oldest. Like, there's something amazing that happens between 12 and 13, which is, even if it's not a height thing, it starts to become a, a maturity thing that just the body starts to change. And when you're looking at 16, we had we had 12 kids and four swings, so 16 kids all together. When you're looking at 16 kids, all of a sudden, when five of them are 9 and 10, and then you've got, like, two that are 13, it, uh, it starts to become unbelievable in terms of that they would be in the same grade. We've all seen Stranger Things. I mean, we 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 understand <laughs> that that change there, the, the Olsen yeah. twins. Yeah, uh, that's so right. Oh, the Olsen twins. That makes me feel like a failure as a father that my almost seven year old is two years away from a Broadway touring show. 
and yeah. she, she can't hold rhythm. Um, and, well, and, and nine is nine was tricky. We we had three nine year olds over the course of a year and a half, and one of them literally uh, for the first couple of weeks, just because he was not used to you know performing till eleven o'clock at night, he was used to like you know eight thirty bedtime or whatever. I used to have to poke him in the wings to wake him up because he would be sitting like waiting for his and would like nod off. Uh, so nine is hard. So give yourself a break. Really, ten is when you should feel like a failure. Okay, good. good. So yeah. I got a few more <laughs> built in a year. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, and then, so when you were uh, teaching in the Bronx, right? You yeah. taught. You taught fifth grade. I taught fifth grade classroom. Yep. So compare, a, like, compare a kid that was on the School of Rock tour to. Uh, is it night and day as far as like the, the type of kid, the type of 10 year old you were dealing with on tour compared to the type of 10 year old you were dealing with in public school in the Bronx? Yeah. It doesn't even, in fact, until you just said that I never even made the comparison that they were the same age. Um, that's wow. Um, yeah, because in, you know, the thing that I learned teaching in the Bronx, doing a teach for America type program was how vastly different and unfair this world can be on people. Um, these were kids who were just struggling to be able to get to school every day. Um, what there was the, the the problems in my classroom, um, the the culture uh, of just sort of survival was very um, was very evident. It was it was um, it taught me so much about humanity. But I had so many kids who you know, already by nine and 10 years old, were thinking the world was against them. So it wasn't a world of opportunity, um, which, you know, almost every day made me so sad. Um, and so the, the, the things, the moments that you're trying to find success with these kids might be being able to read a, a book on a first grade level or being able to add, um, so they're, they're, uh, where they were coming from was very different. Um, I think the kids that I saw in School of Rock, public school or private school or even, you know, some sort of conservatory program at this point, like the – I use the word privilege and I don't necessarily mean it about finance, just financially. I mean, financially obviously comes into play, but – just the, the opportunity and the privilege that these kids had at this point in their life is something that, that is – remarkable and very um, different than what my kids in the Bronx had. I think, you know, ultimately, if you're going to be a parent who is um, going on the journey of, of having a performing child, whether it's, you know, a tour or Broadway or regional or whatever, there's a, you have to be somehow financially stable enough that you can leave your job or, a year or whatever to go tour with these kids because, you know, on School of Rock, one parent had to be on the road with the kids at all times. So, you know, it, it just, um, you're just dealing with people in such a different environment. And I think that's often why the kids on these tours and things like this tend to come from um, upper middle class and higher families is because they have the means, first of all, they have the means to study and to hone in on their craft and things like that but they also have the financial means to be able to you know have a parent leave their job for 
six months to a year. So um, were there any kids on the tour though that, uh, and, and you know, I mean, don't use names, but were there, were there performers on the tour that were there because their parents wanted them to be there? It's hard to tell. I mean, that was a really fun show and the kids loved it. Um, but there were certainly, there were different levels of faith. Um, when, when the tour started out, we had a really intense amount of faith files with us. And it sort of dampened the beginning of the experience for me, to be honest. But then when we did the first set of six months replacement, and some of those parents left, and we got into... Um, it's hard to explain, but like this set of parents that really just were happy that their kids were getting to like do this, it felt so different. It made the whole environment so different. It was, you know, in the beginning, it was always sort of like fights over which understudy was going on and how come my kid doesn't get this and that. And, you know, it felt a little like parents that were over-involved, which sometimes can, can also be parents who are, I don't want to say forcing their kids to do it, but you know what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, parents that just are sort of very aggressive about getting their kids these opportunities. Um, I never saw, you know, it's funny, like the kids that, we we did we do replacements every six months of those kids, and some stay and some go. And so, but I noticed usually around like the nine or ten month mark was when a kid would be like, you know what, I am good. I've done this. I, you know, that's a lot for someone eight shows a week traveling all over the country, um, and being nine or ten and doing school and and you know and being away from your home and your family and your friends and. Um, it, it, it becomes burnout. So I think at that point, it's sort of like, then you start to also see how much influence the parents have on staying going. All right, switching gears just a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's it's one question, but you can answer two two different ways, or I'd want you to answer oh. two different ways. With the school in the Bronx, what, yes. what do you think kept you motivated to keep coming to the classroom, and what did you do to motivate your kids to keep coming to the classroom? Well, I was motivated to go to the classroom because I felt that I could really make a difference. Um, I was part of my program. It was um, because it was like a Teach for America type program. We we went to school in the evenings and got our masters while we were teaching um, the people that were in my cohort. And so, um, one of the things that kept irritating me was this phrase that I heard like so many times, which was don't smile until Christmas. And I, uh, you know, I understood the idea of that. Like if you're too nice early in the beginning of the year, then they're going to take advantage of you and they're going to walk all over you. I just couldn't believe that that was how, what I was being taught on how to deal with 10 year olds. Um, I get that the world is different. I get that their lives are different and these are not same type of 10 year olds that I dealt with in my sort of, privileged suburban New Jersey upbringing. But I was also not going to be the kind of teacher that yelled and disciplined all day because I, whatever job I have, if I can't, if I'm not having fun in it, I'm not enjoying myself, then I'm not going to be as productive as I can be. So for me, I kept going back because I knew that I had stuff to teach them and that I, part of me wanted to prove that theory of don't smile for Christmas wrong, I I was really irritated by that. Um, I think that that, that that is something that I brought to my classroom that was very different than a lot of the other teachers that I saw. I never yelled. I, I don't think I yelled. In the two years I was in the Bronx, I might have yelled three times. 
I, uh, my classroom was fun. We, you know, I, I didn't take anyone's crap, but, but we did it in a way that we, uh, we, we were, we, we enjoyed the respect that our classroom got. Like one of the things that was very important to me was that my class walked down the hallway properly because so many classes did not do that. So that became a thing. I was so eager to make that be something that I prided myself on that then the kids did that. So it became a thing where, like, if someone was acting out in the hallway, one of the other kids would be like, no, stop, we're in the hallway, you can't do that. So I was trying to take the, the lessons of being the best, which is what I've always wanted to be, and instill that in my kids. And I refused to not let them enjoy I mean, there's it's hard and there's things to learn, but you know, we did a fifth grade like holiday show that my class produced, and my kids learned how to sing Carol the Bell, Doctella. We went and lived on a farm for a week. I found this program that let us take the kids. It's called Farm City Kids, and you applied for it. And my kids got to like they had to do all the chores on the farm and like learn what it was like to live outside the city and like. I had kids crying saying they had like never seen a cow before. I mean, just like things that you just didn't, you know, other teachers were not, uh, other teachers lived in such a survival mode and I was not going to do that because I thought if that's how I have to be, I don't want to do this. And so I figured out how to discipline with love and not with fear. And I think that that's what I brought to the table that was different. And I think that that also comes with my theatrical background. I think just being the person that I am, I just was a different kind of teacher than a lot of them had. And now they're all adults, and a bunch of them are friends with me on Facebook, so I guess it's something right. I mean, I missed, I, I felt, I wept for those kids. There yeah. were days that I just, like, you know, it's a life that I, I, I never realized what a lucky human being I was until I saw the world through their eyes. And so I was going to do everything I could to make their lives better and enriched. Now, be honest. Were you one of the ones crying because you'd never seen a cow? That's right. I know. I was shocked. <laughs> no, I was like, oh, you guys have to get up at 6 to milk the cows? That's cool. I'm getting up at 9.30, which is <laughs> awesome because it's totally like the farmhands take kids and make them do it, and I just loved it. Yeah. So. Well, that, that, that latte is not going to milk itself. Thank you. I needed someone to make it for me. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, so now going to the university side of things, um, I've asked this question to a couple of, I guess, more uh, professor-ish type people, um, mm-hmm. Jim Johnson being one of them. So, you know, I'm sure your answer is going to be much better than his. But Wow, I love Jim Johnson. That's uh, mean. Yeah, I guess. Somebody has to. Um, That's right. But uh, what is something that, and you've been removed now from university for what, two years? Six. Six? I thought you were just yeah. in uh, West Philadelphia, born and raised, not too long ago. Uh, I was. I was the first prince until 2013. Twenty. Dang, 2013. Oh, my gosh. Uh, um, that's right. Did you have that cool hat that he has at the very end, uh, that kind of tie-dye? Yeah, of course. Okay, cool. I mean, you get that You get that when you move in. When you move to Philly. <laughs> it's it's like a yeah. lay in Hawaii. They give you the hat when you land in Philly. Right. Uh, so... That's a cheesesteak, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, what is something that you wanted to see more of from students at the university level that were coming into a theater program that they did not get from their high school training? 
it's tricky because, you know, everyone comes from a different type of uh, high school training program. And I, when I was teaching, I always thought like, if I had gone to school to perform, where would I have been on this sort of spectrum of where kids are coming in as freshmen in college? Um, based on my education, and I just I went to public high school in New Jersey. We did a play and musical every year, but like that was it. Like that was what my training was. Um, I think it's hard because you have four years to take these kids through college, and in theory, have them ready to you know, go to Broadway if that's what they want to do. Um, and I think that the training, ultimately, the kids that come in that already understand the voice, understand their, and have an ability to dance, are the kids that are, in my opinion, most successful in a musical theater program. Because you are thrust into this, you know, school setting where there's a couple shows a year, and that's, Outside of your classroom studies, that's really where you're getting a lot of your hands-on experience. And I'm a huge fan of education, and I'm a huge fan of acting classes and things like that. But fundamentally, it's not the same as learning what by doing, which is getting cast in shows. So if you come in and you aren't at a level to be cast, you are already, you know, missing out on a part of the college experience so i think that that's really and it's unfortunate to say like you know if you're 16 or 17 and you're starting to think of this as a career and you've never been in a dance class and i'm I'm obviously talking specifically musical theater because that's really what i taught a lot of you're the the chances of you being successful at 16 or 17 and never having danced before is really low unless you are willing to put in so much extra work for college and I've seen kids do it, and I've seen them be super successful. I, you know, I'm thinking of one guy who had never really taken a dance class and got to Sam Houston, where I first taught. And, but, but the choreographer put his faith in him and said he can learn this. And he struggled through the first show, um, which was a, a, a tap show. And, you know, not a lot of professors will say, I'm willing to take this kid who's not ready to do this. And that kid had immense talent and wound up being the star of everything by his junior and senior year and has gone on to be very successful in his business. But that's a rarity. It's generally like, oh, you don't dance? Oh, you don't really know how to sing and sing singing over, you know, an eight-show week? Well, then we're not going to use you. And those are the kids that I think wind up getting a mediocre experience in college and don't really know how to go to the next level once it's time to leave. I've thought a lot about this. I think, you know, like I have said, and no, no school sort of has the means to do this, but what I've always wanted to do is take a year and have a show. So like in September, cast a, whether a small musical, I always said like, the, you know, the Marvelous Wonder Rest or Forever Platt or something like that would be great and take the four people in the cast and have two understudies and run that show Thursday through Saturday, like spend the first semester rehearsing and getting it ready and then run the show for an entire semester because the thing that no one learns in college yeah. is how to sustain a performance. Yeah, longevity. And yeah. it is, and it is the thing, you know, I'm sitting, you know, I'm so hashtag blessed right now to be working on a Broadway musical, but I look at people 
that even in my cast that don't know how to sustain a performance and that are, you know, what do I do when my voice is a little tired? You know, you can't just call out twice a week for, for life. You can't just, you know, sort of half-ass your way through it. You have to be able to do it and do it every day and keep it fresh. And I think that that is the big thing that people, that I see young performers struggling with, you know, 24, 25, 26, really talented people who jump in and get either like a big tour or get a Broadway show. And, you know, four months in are bored and don't know how to sort of sustain that. And you think like, you're looking at this business wrong because if you can if you can land yourself in like Aladdin or Frozen, like a Disney show, and ride that out, like you, man, you are you're living the dream because you're working and you're making connections and you're making money and you know. But but I see so many people sort of lose their momentum and then because of that they lose their reputation. So uh, years and years ago, I did a show at Space Center Houston as a voiceover character, I lit the show, but then I came in as a voiceover character and we did five shows a day. Yeah. Every, I think hour, 90 minutes, something like that It was a short show, but I thought, and speaking of that longevity thing. So I, I had three different voices for three different robots and these are actual freaking robots like that. Uh, you didn't grow up in Houston, but the, the HPD and I'm sure other big cities have it, but they used to have in the 80s this robot that would come to your school and be like, I'm going to tell you how to fight crime and like all this stuff. And so oh my God. I I took, I adopted that voice and then I did a couple of other ones, but one of them was this old broken down robot and he was just, he did that voice and blah, blah, blah. And so for Ooh, five, show, five shows a day, right? And by the end of the first week, every robot sounded like this because my voice was so was so hoarse. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't. I didn't know how to take care of it. But that, yeah, that speaks to. I like that idea of making at least like even at like uh, Cincinnati, like conservatory, where um, those kids are supposed to be trained for the real world, the the Broadway yeah. world, the professional world, and um, you know uh, NYU, of course, but. That would be an interesting sort of, I guess, uh, cl- I don't even know if it would be a class. I guess it would just be a, a, a something, an optional thing that they would do. But if you're going to conservatory or even a master's program, I, I like that idea. That's that's smart, Larry. You need to trademark like, that. I should. I just think of things that, like, I look at people, like, if you are a woman in this business and you are doing musical theater and you're a performer – like, you have so many things going against you because there are so many of you out there, right? So, like, one of the skills is learning to be a slinger and understudy. So if you take, if you learn that, actually have already figured out how to do that, it's just a foot in the door. Like, that's, you know, there's just, there's a million reasons it's important because I also think that, like, your young directing students need to know how to come in and know the show. You know what I mean? How to watch a show after it's been running for two months and be like, oh, we need a brush-up rehearsal because this is lazy. And what that even means. You know, it's like a lot of stuff that um, I've always felt that as much as I love teaching college, that at least my experience, my experience as a student, as a grad student, and then as a professor, was that, like, I'm not saying learning the classics is not important, but, like, that cannot be the only thing that is being taught if you are wanting people to be successful in current commercial theater. You know what I mean? Like there's only so much I can talk about Hamlet 
before I think like, but I want to be on tour with Linus. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there are other things. I unfortunately think that most colleges are not teaching. They're teaching the theory of theater. They're not teaching the practice of theater, and that's detrimental to students. You you have you have two master's degrees, right? I do one in education and and I have an MFA in directing. Okay. Which one did you get? You got the directing one down here? No, the... I did. Oh, you did. Okay. I got the education one while I was speaking at the Browns. Right. And then... That makes sense. And then when I left that, I I went to Texas because I heard about this guy named Blake Miner. Yeah. So it sent sent me right to Houston. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, I can produce March Falsettos. Ooh. Where? In in Texas. Wow. Of course. Uh, Find me up. That blue state of Texas. Do you know why I went to U of H? Uh, because you like cougars. Well, I do like cougars, but also my mentor in my undergrad sent me to U of H because of Stuart Ostro's program, uh-huh. which was, you know, taking a director, a, a composer, a book writer, and a producer, putting them together and making and giving them a topic and making them create the first act of a musical. Yeah. And I thought, that is the coolest thing I'll ever get to do. And so that was... You know, I applied to a bunch of places, but U of H was on my list because I thought that's an opportunity you don't get in other schools. And you were right. It is the coolest. You're stage managing on Broadway now, but still, that opportunity was the coolest thing you've ever gotten to do. Hey, two more questions. Hey, got it. Uh, One, you're kind of this walking encyclopedia of useless musical (laughs) theater information, right? You're welcome. Yes, I am. What, <laughs> what, what do you think is the most useless yet interesting, like piece of musical theater information that is in that brain of yours? Oh, that's easy. So, the 1993 Tony Awards. Uh, <laughs> let me let me take you back there. It was a great year. Liza was the host. She was in great voice. And uh, she did a great opening number, but then about halfway through the show, she did a duet with her sister, Lorna Luck, who I toured with on my Christmas. And they did this sort of like sisters medley, and it was super fun and cheeky, and they did like, if mama was married, and like all kinds of cute stuff. But right at the end, they like, Sinead turned to the sides of the stage, each got a stool, brought the stools down, and sat them back uh, at center stage, and they did this beautiful arrangement of Not While I'm Around from Sweeney Todd that um, that they're sitting there singing it and right before they get to the end they weaved in the melody of um, uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow since they were both to your own daughter and I think that that is like the perfect moment of like when you're trying to explain to someone how especially like because I taught directing you're trying to explain to someone how to like get that emotion out of people. That was like the perfect moment. I mean, it was like you killed us with this, you know, this ridiculous like theme music that we know. We're crying, they're crying. Um, <laughs> that is sort of, you know, when I when I have the young children of America, I often make them watch that because also you're watching these two like unbelievable performers, but right. you know that like. Um, I don't know. I just find that so magical. That that is like one of my geekiest. Like when people are like, "What should I watch? What should I?" You know. Um, but like trivia. I mean, I, 
it really just depends on what you're interested in. I mean, I, I, I mean, that was, I, that was good. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's probably a community out there that knows exactly what you were talking about. The minute you said 93 Tonys, they're like, Oh girl, yeah. Liza. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lot. Yeah, I mean that's that's there's there's definitely a group like me who knows exactly what that is. You can see the off the shoulder black sequin outfit she was wearing. Yeah, I'm yeah. wearing I'm wearing that right now. But uh, I know you are. But it's not a video pod, so you're yeah. lost. Next time. So you made me think of another question, so I lied to you. Okay. Oh, uh, who is the ultimate female performer ever on Broadway? You're not allowed to Musical? say anything. You know. Yeah. Uh, well, you can give me. I guess you can give me both. Give me both. I mean, if you have one for plays, I'm uh, Sigourney Weaver. I'm assuming, of course. I'm kidding, but mm. yeah, I'm kidding. I mean, oh, and I can't. I feel like you just say the name, and that's all I'm allowed to say. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, you can say I'm whatever on. you want. I got all the time in the world. I mean, it's it's hard to not say Audrey McDonald because. Uh, I mean, I just don't, I still don't understand how one human being can do all the things that she can do. It just is, it's, it's mind numbing to me to like watch her. And like, you look at, when you look at the sort of trajectory of star performers, there is, there's always sort of like a theme that matches like the, the, the style of show or the style of music or the danceability or whatever. But like every, like every time you think there's like not another direction that she can turn, she just turns in another direction and is like, I'll just take my Tony and work for that. So thank you. <laughs> and it's, it's just kind of, I mean, she's, she's sort of it. I mean, and kind of it in, in many categories. So I might just say, I'll answer. Wow. Okay. At the end, yeah. I won't argue with you. I mean, Bernadette Peters is sitting right next to me right now and she has just given me the meanest look. Sorry, Bernie. Yeah. Uh, I, do and, lo- I do love Bernie Peters, though, but, you know. Yeah, I'm partial to the Reds. Um, so, is that is that not PC? <laughs> the Reds? <laughs> anyway. Uh, wow. So, <laughs> wow. So, the, the last question, and and you can, I can make that last question the last question. You can do right or refusal, but I want uh, a kosher legal clean um available to all six of my followers story that you can give me from your current show kiss me kate oh sure okay. like what do you, you want, i don't know like just, a fun, just, a, want... just a fun like just i mean there there's some heavy hitters in there i mean if there's anything that that would humanize them a little bit uh that it, that's just a fun story that they wouldn't be angry at at you about uh we were in free dudes and Kelly O'Hara was doing I Hate Men. And we, and the way, uh, the way the, it's set, she's standing by this flat that has a door in it. And it's on stage right, and I'm in stage right, so I'm in wing one. Then there's like a bunch of guys in wing two because they're about to enter from that door. And she's like serving it up like she does like every minute of every day on stage because she's, another super not human person. It's just unbelievable. And she slams the door and she often gets like a laugh on this moment. She like slams the door and she'll take like a little breath before she goes into the next verse, right? So she slams the door, they're laughing and I can't see her from where I'm standing but I'm like 
basically freaks you from her, but there's like a curtain between us. And she pauses, and I'm thinking, oh, she's she's living her best life with this this applause right now. You know what I mean? Like she's just sort of like not moving forward, and she's standing there, and then all of a sudden, like the only thing that you can say that you can hear as a stage manager and like make like want to die is I hear she goes, I need help. And we're like in the middle of the performance. Well, she shut the door so hard that she pushed the door through the hinge and got her finger stuck in between the door and the hinge uh. and actually like broke her finger. And we were all like, Oh my God, because it's like seven times Tony Award nominee yeah. Kelly O'Hara stuck in a door. Right. So like within like three seconds, the uh, our carpenter on the side of the stage, who's amazing, was able to like get her out from the door. So now Jeff, who's my production stage manager, was calling and was like, you know, God handed Mike about to hold the show. In fact, he started to bring the curtain in because we knew that like we were gonna have to like deal with this, right? So the curtain comes about halfway in, and then Kelly flings around to the audience and starts the deck first. Like the orchestra's <laughs> not even ready because everyone thinks she's stopping. So then just like, take the curtain out, take the curtain out. And the curtain flies back out. She finishes the number. We take we send the stage we send a PA to down the street there's a Dwayne Reed to get like tape and like a splint or whatever. She does the entire rest of the show. She does with a broken finger. <laughs> and I was like, that's a star. That yeah, that's what you do. Yeah. That that is something you have to teach. Like yeah, the, how, to, how, how to perform with a broken well, finger. No, yeah. I, well, no, I mean that level of commitment, you know, like, yeah, hey, totally. you know, get over your cough. Uh, this, you know, this, this, not diva in the negative way, but this Broadway diva just walked on stage, finished her entire show with a broken finger and didn't, didn't flinch. Yeah, there is a level of commitment that certain people have that unfortunately the whole performing arts world doesn't have i think there's i know that you said the last question but i'm still answering that's fine there is a level there's a level of laziness that i see in people that uh and generally it's people that were uber talented were like the leads in all their high school shows you know that don't think that there is a need to learn technique a a need to learn how to lead a need to learn responsibility and it and at some point it doesn't matter how talented you are, you will eventually stop working because people don't want to put up with your stuff. And then you see someone like you see a Corbin Blue or a Kelly O'Hara who are, you know, Corbin is there more than an hour before every day and he practices like he practices his path for at least thirty minutes to 45 minutes before every show. Then all through intermission, he practices actually stuff. I mean, there's a dedication. Like, there's he's a, an unreal tap dancer, but he knows that, like, you know, you only get that to that point from practice and practice and practice, you know? And Kelly is the same thing. She has one of the most glorious voices on Broadway and could just sort of live on that. You know what I mean? She could just be the woman that's like, nah, she's not really great, but God, that voice is amazing. But she is like always like finding new things and creating these characters that are interesting. And like, I know Tiffany Kate so well, and I love to see as she sort of finds things because there are always things that I was like, I never thought of that. That's so smart. And I just think that like, those are the people like you become, you become a different, a higher status from being that kind of person you don't become like 
it's not from being a YouTube star. You know what I mean? Like you, you have to really work to be great. And that's what I love about theater is you can't just pretend because eventually it's going to, it's going to show. So that's, you know, I think it's just about work. Curtain call. Thanks again to Larry Smigleski. What an amazing, just, he's, if you get to know him, you'll fall in love with him uh, immediately. He's just so charismatic and so very, very smart in the world of theater and education and musical theater especially. So this week's Curtain Call is a little unique. I was sort of going to go to Stuart Savage's pedagogy party uh, by inebriation or whatever it's called and interview teachers. Turns out theater teachers don't like to talk when they're asked to talk. They only like to talk when it's something that, you know, they've decided to do. So Kaylin Childress was kind enough to sort of talk into a microphone. She was sitting next to me, so I just sort of forced her to, and information came out of her mouth. Information that is very useful to us as theater educators. Theater education resource blog uh, that we have started uh, with lots of resources for uh, theater educators and uh, lesson plans and uh, play recommendations. So where do you find that? Uh, at thetablewerkcollective.com. See, this is why we record. And so, what? Look at her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, not a video. It's not meant to be a video. Tell me more about this because I don't know about it. Okay, so about like get specific. Yeah. Okay, so about a year ago, I decided um, that there are theater education resources out there, but uh, sometimes it's kind of hard to find them. And so the Tablework Collective isn't necessarily about creating new resources so much as it is curating theater education resources uh, and bringing those together for theater teachers from elementary on up. So are we going to see you at like TETA, Thespians, things like that? Uh, that's kind of the Working goal. On it? Uh, because I am on the K-12 committee for TETA and then in two years we'll be on the board and that kind of thing. It's yeah. a little difficult to, to do both. Sure. Uh, so we're we're working on that. So a few months ago, Katie came on board with that to help out because it's very, it's a lot for one person. So um, see, She raised her hand, but she you can't see yeah. that on the pod. No, no you cannot. Thanks, <laughs> Alex. She raised Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Katie is also here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're we're on Facebook and Instagram, and then we have the actual website. Lots of posts. So this is going to sound like a rude question. What makes you the person to go to for this information? Um, no, I I think think it's a rude question. I think it's a very legit question. I've had the same question. Yes. Like, why are you doing the yeah, podcast? Totally. I like the sound of my voice. Um, I. I think I'm the person to do it because I'm the person willing to do it uh, is the first part. Uh, there, there aren't a lot of people willing to do it. Um, I also 
I also want there to be high quality resources available in one place and um, kind of having a discerning eye for what those are I think helps um, there's there's a lot out there but not not everything is useful for everyone and being able to kind of say hey here are 10 great plays if you are looking for um, small cast ensembles that you know run about 90 minutes um, we can kind of help pull some of those together and give you some some summaries and, and put them in one place and then you know you can come to the website and find a reading list that you can look through and um, so just being willing to put the time and energy into it I think is the first part of it um, I've been teaching for I just finished my eighth year today yay um, and during that time I've kind of made it my goal to be as invested in the theater education community as I possibly can uh, so that I'm not I'm not just taking I'm giving back um, and so whether that's through TETA or through projects of my own I just want to I want to give back it's an important community and it does it's always been important to me um, and it's important to a lot of students and I just want I want educators to to have what they need the other aspect of the Table Work Collective is kind of the tagline is bringing method to the madness on stage uh, and in the classroom and the goal is to help us find ways to kind of make it easier to balance our work and personal lives because we are terrible at that uh, we're awful at that we're, we're terrible at it in, in italicize a point bold, from Corey yes yeah yes and so yeah, yeah it does we, buddy we do make the big big bucks but no we put so many hours in uh, because we care and because we want things to be we want our shows to be beautiful and we want our students to have great experiences but we often do it at, at the cost of our, our own sanity and lot, health. And I, have... I was doing that and my health was suffering and I decided it was something I couldn't do anymore and I was going to make a change and I wanted to encourage others to do the same. And so part of that is helping people have a place where they can find resources and the other part of it is encouraging them to to find that balance. Right. So that's that's the other aspect of that. So what you said you've been open for a year, been doing it for a year? Yeah, I started it up about a year ago, um, really slowly and just kind of, I guess it's actually been more like a year and a half now, um, just started really slowly, kind of introduced it a little bit at TETA when we were still at Theater Fest, when Theater right. Fest was in January right. uh, in Galveston, and posted a little bit here and there, got some things going, but um, as I transitioned from one job to another, uh, that that kind of became my focus, and so it kind of went by the wayside just a little bit, but since Katie came on board, we've been kind of revamping and, and reigniting that, cool. making it happen. We got big plans over the summer to get a lot of stuff out there. That's cool. Any social media? Lots of social media. So we're on um, Facebook and Instagram at Tablework collective and then the website is thetableworkcollective.com you got any funny stories you want to tell or anything while, uh, while the mic's in front of you oh yeah here's a fun uh here's a funny story and you can decide if you actually want to use it or not so i did theater in high school i was a theater kid i was one of mark Pakel's kids oh yeah uh so i was in the two casts that went to state with him for big love and servant of two masters 
and um, we went through this whole thing. I'm a I'm a pastor's kid, and I was playing Clarice and Servant of Two Masters, and she's supposed to say a, a cuss word, and my dad was not cool with that, so we went through this whole thing to change that. We got permission to change it. Um, got to state. We had changed it. Um, used a create your own Shakespearean insult generator. Sure. So we changed it to you villainous gore bellied sheep biting rabbit sucker got to state uh, and apparently my diction was a little off that day and it did not sound like rabbit sucker so went through all of that process you could get even gore even yeah uh-huh uh-huh so yeah uh ended up sounding like i was saying something a lot so worse than the was original your dad script. mad no they thought it was hilarious oh, okay. Minor.